Well, again, we uh, greet you in the Lord uh, from Kindred Community Church, and we thank you for letting us be here today and honored to have you. Thank the elders for inviting me to come. Uh, After they hear me preach, this will probably be the last time, so uh, I just uh, thank you for letting me be here this morning. Let me pray, ask God's blessing on our time, and then we'll jump into the text. Well, Father, we thank you again. Thank you for all that has occurred here this morning opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. Uh, We thank you for all that has been said, all that has been done, and we ask, Lord, this morning that you would open our minds so that we can understand the text that's before us. Uh, Father, open up our wills that we might choose what is right. Open our affections to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, Father, we ask that this morning we'd be different because we've been here under your word and in the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we've worshiped together. Pray that you would use this for your glory and our good, and we thank you now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, again, if you'll turn in your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, Today we're going to look at the beloved story of David and Goliath. So this morning I want to talk to you about God's solution to giant problems. Now, we're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath, and most of us from our youth when we were uh, in Sunday school. Uh, It's the good versus evil, the underdog versus the bully, God versus Satan. Uh, We're familiar with the storyline. In fact, the fabric of the story is so woven in our minds from Sunday school. It's Israel and the Philistines are at a standstill. On one mountain is the Israeli army, and on the other mountain is the army of the Philistines, and in between is the Valley of Elah, the Valley of Blood, or the Valley of Decision. The two armies have decided to send out a representative, right, from each army who's going to be their champion. That is, they are going to fight on behalf of the whole army. The army of the champion who wins will be the master, and the army of the champion who loses will be the slaves to the ones who are the conquerors. The champion of the Philistine army is Goliath. He's nine foot nine inches tall. He's a fighting machine. Goliath walks into the valley of blood 40 straight days and challenges Israel's champion, who is non-existent. David is sent by his father, Jesse, on the 41st day to go visit his brothers who are in the army and bring them a gift of cheese and bread. David may have been the first pizza delivery man in the ancient world. David overhears Goliath's challenges that morning, his blasphemy of the living God. David also witnesses the cowardice of the army of Israel, and he asks permission to fight the giant to preserve God and Israel's honor. David collects five smooth stones. He rejects Saul's armor. He kills Goliath with a sling and a stone and pierces Goliath's forehead. End of the story. Thank you, VeggieTales. And they lived happily ever after. You know... I have uh, looked at this story many times in my life, and as you have in your notes, we're all familiar with this story. In fact, wherever you go in the retelling of this story, there are seven basic facts that everyone seems to agree on about this story. So let me go through them quickly with you so we can establish what that baseline is. Number one, David was a young boy. Most people see him as being between 6 and 12 years old. He's just a little kid. Number two, David was a small boy that he's small in stature. Do you remember the Sunday school song, Little David? David, number three, comes with an inferior weapon. He comes with a rock and a piece of leather or braided hemp, and Goliath is a fighting machine. In fact, he's a walking arsenal. Number four, 
David has no military training. Goliath has been trained since he was a teenager for such things, has served for many years, and David comes to this battle completely green, a new recruit just showing up for basic training. Number five, David was a total unknown. He walks into this scene completely out of obscurity, completely out of mystery, into this scene, into history. Number six, David couldn't use Saul's armor. Why? Because it was too big. You ever seen Veggie Tales? You know, little David. He's coming out there, giant armor. There's no way he can use it. He's a young boy, and they basically tell him, David, put some armor on because you're going to get killed today anyway. And so David tries putting that on, and you have that comical scene. And number seven, in light of those first six facts, what have we all concluded then? Namely, that this was a miracle. David fights a machine that's invincible, and he wins by the intervention of God. Well, those are the seven facts that most Sunday school material teaches, and most Christians have learned from their upbringing. But as I began to study the text again a few years ago, I came to this, that all seven of those facts are incorrect. In fact, they're contrary to what the Bible teaches about the story of David and Goliath. And so it's important for us as we look at this story, like any story from the Bible, to actually know what the facts were of the story so we can interpret it correctly. Why do I say that? Because if you look at this story as a miracle, then the basic idea is that David's a little boy, he's never studied, he just shows up on the field, it's an impossible task, and it takes a miracle. Now, there's plenty of miracle stories in the Bible. Uh, There's Moses, there's the parting of the Red Sea, there's people coming back from the dead. But in this case, I've concluded it's not a miracle, but rather a providence. And let me go through that. As you know, a miracle is when God, who set up all of nature, overturns the laws of nature to tell us something about his person, his plan, or his purposes in life. God does things where he overturns the laws of nature, he does signs and wonders, and it's a miracle. It overturns them in such a way that you know it must have been divine intervention. But in this case, and in what I would describe in most of the Bible, is providence. Providence is God working in the midst of history, behind the scenes, in such a way that you don't see his hand, but you feel the effect. Same cause as a miracle, different effect. You don't see signs and wonders, but you see God working in history. What would be an example? The book of Esther. In the book of Esther, of course, God's name is never even mentioned in the whole book. And yet, the book of Esther clearly shows the providence of God and his work in history. This story, in my estimation, is not a miracle, but rather a providence in which God is working behind the scenes and has prepared David before he ever got there for this task. If it's a miracle, then the best thing I'll be able to do at the end is say, God does miracles to preserve his covenant community and the line of the Messiah. Let's close in prayer. That'd be a great story, and that's how many of the stories of the Bible are. But in this case, in the story of David and Goliath, I'd like to show you from Scripture, my estimation, that there's three essential lessons in here for us in our Christian experience that David learned as well as that we could learn as well. Well, let's jump in then to the text and look at those three main points. Number one, David trained in private before ever winning in public. David trained in private before ever winning in public. Let's look at 1 Samuel 17, verses 31 to 37. What Saul said was overheard and reported to Saul. What David said, rather, was overheard and reported to Saul. 
And Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. We're going to come back to that word. And he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. And your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. That was Saul's way of saying, Good luck and better you than me. So who is David at this point when he shows up at the battlefield? If he's not those seven things, where in Scripture would I get the idea that he's different and what are they? That's my ten things now before I launch into the the rest of the text. But in the outline, there are ten things that I think are true about David in the Scriptures that we don't often think about. Number one, David is old enough to get married. When he shows up at this battle, he's old enough to get married. Why do we think that? Well, he must have been old enough because he receives the hand of Saul's daughter as one of the gifts in the very next chapter. And historically, the next chapter comes right after this. There's no huge gap. So David's not six years old, and Saul says, hey, marry my daughter. You know? This is not Anakin Skywalker with uh, whatever, right? Okay? This This is for real. So number one, he gets married right after this scene. He's not a little boy. Number two, he is a shepherd. And we know that in the Middle East... There are plenty of shepherd boys, so I'm not saying this proves it, but he has single-handedly defeated a lion and a bear out there. He's probably not a little boy, so I'm combining number two and three. Number two, he's a shepherd, and number three, David has killed a lion and a bear. Uh, Probably not a seven or eight or nine-year-old boy. He's doing this with his bare hands and the little things that shepherds hold. Number four, and this is where we get into the scripture proof. David is described as a man and a warrior in the Bible before this incident. Before the incident. David is described as a man and a warrior before this incident. Where do I get that? In the chapter before this chapter, chapter 16, David has already been introduced to the story. Saul's been demon-oppressed, struggling with depression, and he wants someone to come and soothe him with music. Do you remember that? So they go looking for a guy who's going to play the harp for him. And what does it say about that? In 1 Samuel 16, verse 17, it says, So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Now, you would expect at this point the guy to say, See, I've seen this six-year-old kid who has no idea. Let's put him out there. But instead, what does he say? He's a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior. Where does this all come from? A prudent one, a handsome man, a Lord is with him. And so Saul said to his messengers, to Jesse, and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. This all happens in the chapter before David shows up in David and Goliath. What else do we know about that from 1 Samuel 16? David has not only been a shepherd and not only played for Saul, David has actually been in the army 
prior to him fighting, David, fighting Goliath. We get that from 1 Samuel 16, 21. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Huh? He's actually been in the military prior to this. He's been conscripted, and he's in the military. What did armor bearers do in the ancient world? Well, it's like the Secret Service does, and they protect the president. Armor bearers protected kings or mighty men in battle in those days. As you know, the, the, the guy was basically the expendable crewman, okay? So they sent him out there with a huge shield in front of the warrior, and he walks out there, and he's got a shield to protect the warrior from the arrows and the various things, javelins, etc. He's supposed to keep his eye out for such things to allow the warrior to engage another warrior in hand-to-hand combat. David has been recruited already to be an armor bearer. Who did they choose to be armor bearers in the ancient world? Six-year-old boys? <laughs> no. As it says, he's a mighty man of valor, a proven man, a warrior. They chose stout men, men of valor, guys who would hold their ground when the enemy rushed into fight the king. So who is David at this point? He's an armor bearer who serves in the military. Sometimes people then ask, well, well, but doesn't Saul later after David and Goliath say, who is that man's son or whose son is he? Saul doesn't seem to know who he is, does he? Well, Saul doesn't even know who he is <laughs> on occasions. By the time David has come to serve Saul in 1 Samuel 16, Saul's already demon oppressed. He's forgetting a lot of things. As you know, he's going to try to kill David immediately after David comes into his service. This is not a stable individual, okay? He's more like one of our current congressmen or something like that. You know, he's just not very stable. And so this is a guy who is not stable. So anyway, why doesn't Saul know who he is? He doesn't really say, who is David? He says, who is that guy's father or whose son is he? Why? Because one of the prizes of killing Goliath, remember, was that your, ta- your family was tax-free the rest of your life. And so one of the things Saul's trying to inquire about is, hey, who am I giving this break to? And Saul has forgotten who David's father is. That's not impossible. Why? Because there were multiple armor bearers. David's not the only armor bearer in Israel. Why? Because that guy gets killed. It's kind of a real problem. There's, there's a pool of armor bearers of which David would have served in. And David is like in the National Guard. He comes back and forth between serving Jesse at home and the sheep and serving Saul. Before he comes to the Goliath incident, we're told in 1 Samuel 17, 13 to 15, this. The three older brothers, or older sons of Jesse, had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, the second was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest were gone after Saul. But verse 15, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Who is David at this point? Well, David is like a guy, as I said, in the National Guard, and he's like a veterinarian. And, uh, during the week, he's basically serving, hanging out with sheep, learning his craft. On the weekend, he's a warrior. He shows up for battles once in a while. Hey, can I hold up the shield for you? And then, as I already noted, occasionally becomes a pizza delivery man. He's like a college student, right? You know, he's just trying to keep it together, not getting much sleep. And he's in those teenage to early 20 years as I calculate David's age. Why do I say that? We'll go on and say a couple more things. Number six, 
David uses Goliath's sword. Another thing in the scriptures you have to remember. Goliath's sword is huge. Okay? It's huge. He's Goliath's nine foot nine. So again, the comical six-year-old boy, you know, he takes a sword and cuts his head off with it, something very easily for him. Number seven, David rejected the king's armor. Why? Not because it was too big for him, but because he had never used it. We're going to look at that passage in a minute. Did David's ar- or Saul's armor not fit David is a question. Well, it doesn't say that. David just said, I'm not used to this armor. What do we mean? Look, these men in Israel, while sometimes were crazy, are not crazy about height. Okay? They could tell easily that David was an approximate fit for Saul. We're told in the scriptures that Saul's the tallest man in Israel. He's head and shoulders above any man in Israel. At least early on, before David, when he was first king, Saul's the tallest man in Israel. So he was easily found in a crowd. So he's a big man. When David shows up and Saul says to him, why don't you wear my armor? Saul's not, again, looking at a six-year-old boy, and he's the biggest man in Israel saying, here, take those. It would be ludicrous. What he's saying is, hey, son, you're approximately in my range of bigness. Why don't you take these tools with you and fight this guy? Again, Saul knows David from being his armor bearer and knows David knows something about military. This is not the first time they've ever met. Um, Number eight, David is over the king's army. David's over the king's army. Do you immediately after killing Goliath, Saul says, David, hey, while you're there, why don't you just become the man over my fighting men? You don't do that again with six-year-old boys typically in history. You might do it with Joan of Arc on a rare occasion, but you don't usually do it with little boys. Number nine, in my estimation, and I think I put the word Davis instead of David in the outline, unless it's been corrected, but in my estimation, David is 18 to 22 years old at this point. Why? If I look at the chronology of David's life, he becomes king within 8 to 12 years of this event, and so I think, and he's 30 when he becomes king according to Scripture. If I add those pieces up, I roughly get to David as 18 to 22 years old when he comes to fight Goliath. But what about it, and here's my last two points, and then we'll dive into the text proper. What about it when he's called a boy or a, a youth? When Saul, uh, when Saul talks to him, he says, you're just a youth. And then later, Goliath is going to call him a youth or a boy. What does that mean? Well, the text here uses the word youth, and which is used throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. That Hebrew word really means teenager or young man. Let me try to give you four examples. It says, but if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced, and she has no child and returns to her father's house in her youth, same word, she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat it. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Again, if that word meant little kid, it's kind of complex there. (laughs) The children when you were a child, that's kind of weird. And let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Same Hebrew word. What does it mean? A young man. It does not mean a child. And so again, the text is using the same Hebrew word that would mean a teenager or a young man, probably in his early 20s. So number 10, what is my point? David is a man. David is a man. Okay, just to reiterate, where is David then here? I think he's a classical student, he's a veterinarian, pizza delivery man, National Guard. Who is he? He's a shepherd, an armor bearer, 
a mighty man of valor. He has military training. He's known in the palace. He's 18 to 22 years old, and he's probably a stud. They said, this man is a man of valor. He may be six-something foot tall. For the ancient world, a large man, a stout man, a young man. But at this point, a proven man. Does that change, perhaps, maybe you already knew that, but does that change the picture then of David and Goliath? Was it a miracle or providence? Let's continue on. So between the promise that David had to be king back in the early chapters of this book and the fulfillment when David gets to be king, David goes into what we've all been in, the wilderness. You know the wilderness motif in the Bible. God takes Israel out in the wilderness. He takes Moses out in the wilderness. He takes his own son out in the wilderness. And in the wilderness motif, God takes you into obscurity or semi-obscurity for a time to do a work of sanctification in you, to prepare you for something God has for you. In my estimation, the great lesson of this chapter and this story of David is that God caused David to train in private before he ever won in public. And what was God doing to train David? At least two things. He was training him in his character and his competency out in the wilderness. Look, friend, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you've been in the wilderness. You've been out there where God says, okay, you and me and nobody else is going out there. And I'm going to take you where nobody can help you. And I'm going to develop in you character and competencies that will last for your lifetime. That's what God is doing when he takes you out in the wilderness. And that's what David had when he's just taking care of sheep, waiting, because he's already been told he's going to be the king. You know that part of life when you're very excited about something God's doing in your life and you can kind of see off in the distance, hey, God's doing this big thing in my life, but it just seems way off in the distance forever? David had been promised to be king, but in between he's going to have over 15 years from the time he was a little kid all the way through this time we're waiting with Saul till he's 30 years old. So what is God doing in that? Two things, character and competency. What do I mean? First of all, his character is integrity. Stay with me on this. He's out there with a sheep, and a lion and a bear show up. Hopefully not on the same night. Okay? They're tag teaming. We got, we got, we got this boy. You know? We own him right now. You know? But a lion shows up and a bear. Now, if you're the only shepherd in the field, and it's nighttime, and you go, you know, they don't have street lights in ancient Israel, right? Oh, look, hey, there comes a bear, you know? And they're not wearing night goggles, right? <laughs> you know, we got this guy, you know? They just show up. Bears just show up to eat, eat sheep. Integrity is when you're all alone out there, and you could report the next morning to Jesse. Hey, Dad, I did everything I could. But, you know, bears eat sheep. <laughs> it happens, you know? Why does David step in? They're sheep. Uh, it's integrity. It's about an audience of one. Why do Christian musicians who love Jesus, even if four people show up or 100 people show up, still worship? Uh, they're playing to an audience of one. And that's what David learned in his early years where many of the lessons he learned that became part of his psalm history is God being faithful to him and him meeting with God in person, privately, before he ever shows up in the public arena. What's the point of that? David had slain his personal giants, if I want to take the spiritual angle in just getting there. David is being slaying his own personal 
corporate or character giants before he ever shows up and does corporate giants publicly. I think of my son, Keegan, who's not here today. We have two children, Keegan and Paul. Keegan's 19, Paul's 24. Uh, they're probably the most spiritual young men in America. And uh, Okay, maybe not. But, uh, but my son, Keegan, last year went to a discipleship and uh, training program in Texas for about six months. And we came to his graduation, and I remember being so impressed that they had learned all kinds of fun things. I mean, rescue diving and mountain, you know, rescue. And he went in a SWAT team tactical dive school in Florida. It was really cool. But what I really loved was that they had memorized the book of First Peter during his tenure there, that they had really grown spiritually. He was journaling more. And when I showed up, I remembered this as a young man, kind of that picture. David might have been in that 18, 19-year-old thing. To see him encourage me in my faith at that point, and see what God's doing. He wasn't just learning competency, but he's learning the character behind it. And I remember showing up, and him's like, yeah, Dad, and I did this and that. And I was like, okay, Lord, I need to go home and pray more. <laughs> you know, very convicting. You know, the problem is, and the second part of integrity is this. Think of David, not only in that he was willing to go out after it alone, but he stayed under authority. And this is my second point. You know, as a young person, when you were much younger, as a teenager, and into your early years, there's plenty of authority figures God brings in your life to bring pressure upon you to help you be like Jesus, right? And David learned the lesson that's invaluable for all young men and all young ladies, and that is to stay under biblical authority, not authority that's not biblical, but under biblical authority, and to stay under that. Why? Think of it again. David's the next king. He's already had the prophet Samuel come to him and say, you're the man, you're the next king. Now, if you're, one of, if you're a parent here and you've got a teenager what if your, your teenager's already been told by God he's the next president? Your 11-year-old could be sitting around going, nah, I, I don't do trash cans, all right? I'm the next president, right? So David could have been saying the whole time, I don't do dead, I don't do sheep, and I don't do cheese and bread. I don't get a delivery boy to do that. Think about it. If David had said to his dad, I'm not doing that, on the 41st day of battle, taking cheese and bread down there. He never would have fought Goliath that day. One simple act of obedience to his dad, when he already had a promise from God to be the man, led to an incredible historical event. That's the little things of life in the wilderness that God's training us in character, to stay under where God has us, plant where you, you know, bloom where you're planted, God's working character in you, and the encouragement is stay where God is doing something. In the book of James, it says to hupa meno, the Greek word, to remain under what God is doing while he's placing all that pressure on you. You're like, I hate this. And God's like, no, but I'm making you like Jesus. I'm using all things to do that. Well, finally, four competencies David learned. He learned character and four competencies. I'll quickly do those. What was God doing to him in the wilderness? Four things. Making him a shepherd, a soldier, a songwriter, and a spiritual giant. There you go. A shepherd. Why? Because he's going to be the king, the shepherd of the nation. Number two, he's becoming a soldier in hand-to-hand combat. If he lived today and he lived in Israel, he would be learning Krav Maga. Right? Right? Something of a martial art, but a hand-to-hand combat technique the Israeli army uses. He'd be learning Krav Maga. That's what he was good at. He learned to be a soldier in the field, fight animals who came in first, and then eventually Goliath. He becomes a songwriter. We all know that. Why? He writes half the Psalms. He's the worship leader of all of Israel. 
They're concerned about him at the end of his days, and they say, David, don't go out anymore at the end of his days to fight giants. Why? Because we don't want the lamp of Israel to be extinguished. You're the spiritual leader of this entire nation. And David was learning to do it for an audience of one. And fourthly, he becomes a spiritual giant. In fact, so that on the day that he meets Goliath, what do we know? That David's actually the giant in the field that day and not Goliath. So what is God doing in your life if you're in the wilderness today? Those two things. He's developing character and competencies that you have no idea where they're leading. Trust him. Stay under the discipline. Wait on the Lord. Let him build that character in you. Because what always happens, when we try to squirt out from the pressure of what God is doing, God just meets us down there, right? And we get there only to find out, oh, it's the same lesson. That lousy boss, guess what? I got a new one, you know? You know the story. It's like the young man who's a teenager at home, and he's like, I'm tired of this oppression of my parents. I'm tired of listening to these stupid rules. I'm going out and joining the Marines. You know? Good luck. All right. Write me. That's what God's doing. Stay where he's doing his thing. Be where God is. Let him do his work in you. And at the end, it will bring about a peaceable fruit of righteousness. Well, number two in this passage, David tested his weapons personally and did not give in to the voices that tempted him to quit. David tested his weapons personally and did not give in to the voices that tempted him to quit. Let's look at verses 38 to 40 together. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head, and David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. David had been developed again by God in the wilderness. And this is the interesting thing that turned me from thinking this story was a miracle to a providence, and here's why. I began to study the ancient sling. You're like, dude, you are such a geek. <laughs> but years ago, I went on and I started to look up, what is a sling? You know, a slingshot and all, you know, what is that? And what did David use and all that? So bear with me just for a second. What I found out when I studied about the sling of the ancient world and, and even its modern counterpart and the reenactments they do in contest, the ancient sling was actually like a modern rifle. It was the weapon of choice in a fight with Goliath, not the weapon of inferiority. Why do I say that? Because you're fighting a nine-foot-nine guy who walks around like a tank. And his head's the size of a pumpkin. Even though he's got armor mainly covering most of this, he has a vulnerability spot that's pretty small, and you think, it has to be a miracle. Nobody could really hit that. And that's what I'd like to get into for a second. First of all, were slings just something that David came along? Is that some little weapon? No. In fact, in Judges chapter 20, some, an event 100 to 300 years before David, it says this. Out of all these people in the army, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair, H-A-I-R, and not miss. 100 to 300 years before David's on the scene, he's at about 1,000 B.C., book of Judges between 1,000 and about 1,400, 1,400 to 1,100. What's happening? 
The Israeli army has 700 left-handed slingers who were so deadly accurate that the Bible says that they could aim at a hair and not miss. Now, that's a hyperbole. It doesn't mean they were out in the field going, I want that left one by his temple, right? No, 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 I got it, I got it, right? Okay, it's just trying to make the point. These guys were deadly accurate. Really? They had 700 left-handed guys already trained in the army before David, long before. Why? And why were they left-handed? Very simply, uh, most, of the, most of the king types were probably right-handed, but the shield bearers out here, and it gives a beautiful approach from the left. They put the guys on the left. They shoot the rocks in here, making the, this guy kind of do this, and then other vulnerabilities came to the king or the warrior from the other side. The right-handed warriors would fight him. The point is, this was a common use in ancient warfare. Uh, another passage in 1 Chronicles 12, 1 and 2, which I will not read to you, gives us another time when some of David's men were excellent at using the sling. I have kind of a quote. It's a little bit long. It'll probably take me about an hour and a half, so just hang with me. But there's a guy named Vegetius. That's a great name. But he's a late uh, 300 to 400 Roman writer, and he says this, Recruits are being taught the art of throwing stones both with a hand and the sling. The inhabitants of the Balearic Islands, they're off Spain, are said to have been the inventors of slings and to have managed them with surprising dexterity owing to the manner of bringing up their children. Get this. The children were not allowed to have their food by their mother till they had first struck it with a sling. So they'd put them out there on a post or whatever, and until the child could hit it, knock it off, they couldn't eat. Soldiers, he says, notwithstanding, at this period of time, uh, their defensive armor often more annoyed by the round of stones from the sling than by all the arrows of the enemy. Stones kill without mangling the body. Contusion is mortal without loss of blood. It's universally known the ancients employed slingers in all their engagements. What was a sling in the ancient world? It was a rifle. And in the right hands, ridiculously accurate. In fact, I went on, and you can do this today. You'll do this when you get home. You'll be like, nah, that didn't happen. Then uh, you go home. There's the History Channel, which I don't really watch, but I was Googling this again recently, and there's a nine-minute thing about a guy from the Balearic Islands today who's the champion of the Balearic Islands. They're kind of the world-famous sling guys. And the current champion they brought to Israel, and they set up a nine-foot-nine deal with a sensor at the top of it to, to say four inches wide so that it would kind of give you the basic idea of Goliath's head right here. They set it up at a distance, and they had him do his sling thing. And this guy... He's killing it. He's killing it. Not literally, obviously, but right? He's like, whap. <laughs> and so they have him go over there, and there's a sensor in there that gives how much Newtons or how much force is there. Would it kill a human being? And then they bring in a surgeon. I would kill a human being. You know, that, you know it's, it's kind of like, uh, what's that? Mythbusters, you know? you know? But the point is, he delivered so many Newtons, 3,600 or whatever it is, and from a distance, and he's like 10, 20 yards out, He's in the kill zone, and he's knocking this four-inch sensor into kingdom come. In fact, I read on the internet that the best guys in the world today and who do these reenactments can embed a rock at 60 to 90 yards with 90% accuracy in a contest. Now, we're not talking about four inches, but they put these you know, different things out at different distances. The best in the world can embed a rock at 60 to 90 yards with 90% accuracy on certain of their tests. So David, I don't know how good he was. He didn't come from the Balearic Islands, you know. How good was he before he got to the field? I can't prove that. But I do know this is a weapon of ancient renown. He was used to it. And his point was, I don't want your armor. I'm not used to them. 
Let me take this. I take it as David as a skilled warrior has been using it, probably killing stuff out there, and he's ready to use it. Um, why did David take five smooth stones, not one, if he's that good? Right? You all know the story of David and Goliath. There's probably two reasons most people think. Number one, Goliath had four brothers, right? The text tells us later Goliath had four brothers. Maybe David's thinking, dude, this is going to be fun today, guys, you know? Or maybe David's just being judicious and not being uh, thinking, I can just do anything. Maybe David's saying, hey, if I miss, I need four more. Why not seven? You know? Why not 13? David was light and mobile, and Goliath was not. So what's the point of this? David tested his own weapons personally, and he did not give in to the voices that tempted him to quit. Think again. God had trained David in private in character and competency before he ever got to the field. He had trusted the Lord. He was a prepared warrior, and David was used to a particular weaponry. Uh, God, again, when he's building you in the wilderness, is preparing you spiritually and physically to things that you never think you would need, but that competency will come in later. Have you not noted that in life as you move along? You learn some computer skill at a dull job. You're like, wow, angry birds. Wow, that's really cool. And you're at a dull job and you learn something about the computer and then God, you're like, I hate this job. But in God's providence, if you stay and your attitude stays right and you stay open to what God's doing, Sometimes God will move you into a job where they go, now the main competency we need here is bump, bump, and you're like, no way, you know? And that's God, and his timing, it's providence. God was preparing David that whole time as a boy, throwing, you know, hitting things out in the world. Why? Because one day he was going to bring a giant in the field that David would be prepared for. This is more like the story of Moses or Paul in the Bible than it is Gideon. Gideon, no training. You don't have to be trained to be scared, Right? You just show up to be scared, all right? But Moses and Paul are guys, you know, Paul had this PhD in theology already. He was a Pharisee. He learned all this stuff. He becomes the theologian of the New Testament and writes the book of Romans. Moses had been trained in the Pharaoh's court. He had all the degrees of all that, but he, gave, he didn't trust in that. Paul didn't trust in that. And David doesn't trust in his training, right? He doesn't trust in his experience, but it was preparatory to God's work. So let me say this. When I say he didn't give in to the voices that tempted him to quit, there's three voices. I won't go into the passage other than the note it. Before the David and Goliath incident, there's three, or in the David and Goliath incident, there's three different voices of people to try to convince him that the three things that God has trained him in will not work. Let me just say this. Whenever God's called you to a work on his behalf, there are going to be plenty of people who tell you, you're not good enough, you're not old enough, you're not this enough. Why don't you go home? You've got bad motives. Why? Because the devil and other people will usually try to harp on. I've found in ministry what you've probably found. Um, the people who complain the most in the ministry are the people doing the least ministry. Um, and we always use the phrase, as others have used, I like the way we're doing it better than the way you're not. <laughs> usually you have people come and say, well, I didn't like the color, or why'd you let the bird do the thing? And... <laughs> You know, and they're usually not the people engaged in ministry. Those of you who are engaged in ministry to people know that it takes a deep commitment to do those things. It's not that you're beyond being criticized. That's not the point. But often the most critical people in a ministry are the people least involved in sharing their own heart 
and engaging it. So what's the point? The brothers tell David to go home when he first gets there. They question his integrity and that he doesn't stay under authority, the very thing David had learned. They say, the reason you're here today with the bread and cheese is because you're naughty. And God, you're here and you want to make yourself famous. And you're, does dad even know you're here? The second voice is Saul. Saul should be the one guy cheering him on. What does Saul tell him? You've got no history with God, son. This other guy has been training for his whole life. And you are just a teenager. What are you doing here today? And David says, no, no, no. God's already done stuff to me. I killed a bear. I killed a, I got a history with God. And then the third voice is Goliath. Am I a dog that you should come out here? Blah, blah, blah. Why are you bringing a boy out to fight me? And you have an inferior weapon. You're going to come against me with a stick and a blah, blah, blah. You have an inferior weapon. All three of the things that David showed up with, the devil and the ignorant try to dissuade you. Do not give in to the voices that tempt you to quit God's call upon your life. In his glorious timing, he will make it possible. My son, Paul, is a musician. Um, And uh, in his growing up years, we often talked about that. And here's the phrase I would use to him. Don't sell out. Don't sell out. In our day and age, even among Christian musicians, uh, there's a great temptation to sell out your message to get a recording contract. You know, if I just truncate the gospel, if I just truncate Jesus, or if I just truncate my enthusiasm about this, if I just bring it down a notch, I can get that recording contract. And I'd often tell him, don't sell out. God has given you something great to use for his glory. And that's what we're talking about. God has given you purposes. He's given you gifts. He's given you a passion. He's given you a calling. And don't sell it out in the midst of the waiting in the wilderness. Wait for him in his glorious timing. He'll bring it to fruition. Okay, well, finally, my last point, point three, David trusted in the power and promises of God. David trusted in the power and promises of God and not in his own training and not in his own weapons, right? The point of the whole story at the end is that very thing. Just because David had all this great work and just because he did all that didn't mean what God would have him trust in. And so let's look at verses 41 to 52 in our conclusion. Meanwhile, the Philistines, with his shield bearer in front of him, see, he has one, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy. And again, this word here is actually the same Hebrew word. That's the translation I'm reading out of the NASB. But it's the same Hebrew word that means young man. Ruddy and handsome. He was a redhead, a red complexion, and he was handsome, and he despised him. A friend of mine's always said, nobody loves a winner. <laughs> but uh, I'll go on. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in my training. No. He says, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air, the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That is the glory of God. God brings one guy when an entire army for 41 days doesn't go in the field. Saul was the champion of Israel. 
When you go back to Saul's words to him, which is, son, this guy's been training forever. Okay, even if you believe that, Saul, why aren't you going down there? You're the champion. Never listen to a coward when courage is on the line. You know, son, I don't know if that's going to work. Why didn't you go down? And David is the man that God chose to go down. So David says this, verse 47, All those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves. It's not by weapons. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Um, I'll, I'll just go on. I'll go on with the text. Verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. I always think of uh, that story, uh, Chariots of Fire. When I run, I feel his pleasure. And even though that's not in the text, I just feel David's running into the battle, anticipating what God's going to do. In verse 49, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword, using Philistine conventional weaponry, which they thought was invincible. In his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the scabbard, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursuing the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shaharim road to Gath and Ekron. Hmm. A couple closing points. Number one, it often just takes one person. <laughs> Right? You've been in the wilderness. You have no idea what God wants from you. I've seen churches, families, people, myself, plateau spiritually at times. You ever had that? Where you're at a season in your life like, man, I used to be on fire for God. Now I just play a lot of Donkey Kong. It's not quite as what it used to be. But God will raise up someone or someones to encourage everyone else. And that's what he does with David. What happens when David rushes into the battle by God's grace? All of a sudden, the entire army is like, let's go get those chumps. You know, before they're like, "Eh, I'm not going down there. You know, I'm not going down there. So why was David so confident that he was going to win that day? That's my final point. Why was David so confident? See, See, at this point, some might preach this. You see what David did, guys? He ran into battle against giants. So when you leave here today, go down to Los Angeles, pick out the biggest guy down there, and push him around, okay? It's going to work for you. Why was David confident that he was going to win? Some might preach it's faith. David had great faith, and we have to do his faith. It is not faith to dream up things for God or believe that something's going to happen just because you show up, right? Is that faith? No, that's like presumption. Right? Presumption is when the devil tells Jesus, jump off this thing and God will catch you. It's going to work out. That's presumption. Do not test the Lord your God. So what is faith and why did David believe he was going to win that day? Well, I don't know if I can answer it perfectly. The text doesn't say it, so I'd be trying to bring other texts to bear. But here's what I would say. David had a promise, a verbal promise from God that he was going to be king. Now, I'm not sure that David calculated that before he went into the battle. You know, let's see. I'm going to be king, and he's big, but I'm going to win. I can't say that, but David had a confidence that he says, today this is going to happen. I'm going to win today. He had a promise from God 
that was clear that he was going to be king. It's what Oliver Cromwell, the British politician and soldier, said. He said, I am immortal until my work on earth is done. Or Stonewall Jackson, the great Civil War uh, general, when he was in a battle, and he came off the battle, and he'd been standing in the middle of it. It's the Battle of Bull Run, Manassas in Virginia, a place where I grew up there, and, and we owned a home just miles from the battlefield. But just at that battlefield, Jackson came on the field, and he stood in the middle while the bullets were going all over. And after the battle, a young man, he got his name there of Stonewall. He stands like a stone wall. And a young man asked him, weren't you afraid? And this is what he said. I am as safe on the battlefield as in my own bed within the will of God. I'm just as safe on the battlefield as in my own bed within the will of God. And Jackson believed that God had called him to this particular task. What is it? David did not, in my estimation, have presumption, but he had a faith on the levels of different things. One, there's an Abrahamic covenant that they were living under. This is our land. And God had promised it to Israel as they had gone in. And David, I think, is continuing and fulfilling that. So what's the lesson of the day? David trained in private before he ever won in public. That is God's work, often in providence, to prepare you for his job. Number two, David tested his own weapons personally and did not give in to the voices that tempted him to quit. God will prepare character and a competency for you in the wilderness and prepare you for it. And number three, David trusted, whatever that is, David trusted in the power and promises of God and not in his own weapons or training. That is how God often works in providence, to prepare to use us, and to cause our trust to be in him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have done the miracle of new birth in our life and caused us to come to Christ by the work of your Holy Spirit in ways that we could never have done. And we thank you for that. We thank you also for the providence that you work in history to fulfill your your glory and our good, so that you bring about the ends that you have ordained and decreed beforehand, so that we might glory in you. Lord, whether the person's in the wilderness or in their time of encouragement right now, give grace as we leave here today to apply these by trusting in you, waiting on you in the time of development, and letting you form Christ in us as you have promised to do. We thank you now in the name and through the blood of Jesus. Amen.